0: Wednesday, March 22nd, 1944 Dearest Kitty, I received this letter last night from Margaret. Dear Anne, After your letter of yesterday, I have the unpleasant feeling that your conscience bothers you whenever you go to Peter's to work or talk. There's really no reason for that. In my heart, I know there's someone who deserves my trust, and I won't be able to tolerate Peter in his place. However, as she wrote, I do think of Peter as a kind of brother, a younger brother, we have been sending out feelers, and a brotherly and sisterly affection may or may not develop at some later date, but is certainly not reached that stage yet. So there's no need for you to feel sorry for me. Now that you've found companionship, enjoy it as much as you can. In the meantime, things are getting more and more wonderful here, I think, Kitty that true love may be developing in the end. All those jokes about marrying Peter if we stayed here long enough weren't so silly after all. Not that I'm thinking of marrying him, mind you. I don't even know what he'll be like when he grows up, or if we'll even love each other enough to get married. I'm sure now that Peter loves me too. I just don't know in what way. I can't figure out if he wants only a good friend or if he's attracted to me as a girl or as a sister. When he said I always helped him when his parents were arguing, I was tremendously happy. It was one step forward making me believe in his friendship. I asked him yesterday what he'd do if there were a dozen ends who kept popping in to see him. His answer was, if they were all like you, it won't be so bad. He's extremely hospitable, and I think he really likes to see me. Meanwhile, he's been working hard at learning French, even studying in bed until 10.15. Oh, when I think back to Saturday night, to our words, our voices, I feel satisfied with myself for the very first time. What I mean is, I'd still say the same and won't want to change a thing, the way I usually do. He's so handsome, whether he's smiling or just sitting still. He's so sweet and good and beautiful. I think what surprised him most about me was when he discovered that I'm not at all the superficial, worldly Anne I appear to be, but a dreamer like he is, with just as many troubles. Last night after the dinner dishes, I waited for him to ask me to stay upstairs, but nothing happened. I went away. He came downstairs to tell Dussel it was time to listen to the radio and hung around the bathroom for a while, but when Dussel took too long, he went back upstairs. He paced up and down his room and went to bed early. The entire evening I was so restless I kept going to the bathroom to splash cold water on my face, I read a bit, daydreamed some more, looked at the crop, and waited, 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 all the while listening to his footsteps. I went to bed early, exhausted. Tonight I have to take a bath, and tomorrow, tomorrow's so far away. Yours,
1: Anne Frank. My answer, dearest Margaret, I think the best thing is simply to wait and see what happens. It can't be much longer before Peter and I will have to decide whether to go back to the way we were or do something else. I don't know how it will turn out. I can't see any farther than the end of my nose. But I'm certain of one thing. If Peter and I do become friends, I'm going to tell him you are also very fond of him and be prepared to help him if he needs you. You won't want me to, I'm sure, but I don't care. I don't know what Peter thinks of you, but I'll ask him when the time comes. It's certainly nothing bad. On the contrary, you're welcome to join us in the attic or wherever you are. You won't be disturbing us, because we have an unspoken agreement to talk only in the evenings when it's dark. Keep your spirits up. I'm doing my best, though it's not always easy. Your time may come sooner than you think. Yours Anne. Thursday, March 23, 1944 Dearest Kitty, things are more or less back to normal here. Our coupon men have been released from prison, thank goodness. Meep's been back since yesterday but today it was her husband's turn to take to his spectacles and fever, the usual flu symptoms. Bab is better, though she still has a cough, and Mr. Clayman will have to stay home for a long time. Yesterday, a plane crashed nearby. The crew was able to parachute out in time. It crashed on top of a school, but luckily there were no children inside. There was a small fire and a couple of people were killed. As the airmen made the descent, The Germans sprayed them with bullets. The Amsterdammers, who saw it, seethed with rage at such a dastardly deed. We, by which I mean the ladies, were also scared out of our wits. I hate the sound of gunfire. Now about myself. I was with Peter yesterday, and somehow, I honestly don't know how, we wound up talking about sex. I'd made my mind a long time ago to ask him a few things. He knows everything. When I said that Margaret and I weren't very well informed, He was amazed. I told him a lot about Margaret and me and mother and father and said that lately I didn't dare ask him anything. He offered to enlighten me and I gratefully accepted. He described how contraceptives work and I asked him very boldly how boys could tell they were grown up. He had to think about that one. He said he'd tell me tonight. I told him what had happened to Jack and said that girls are defenseless against strong boys. Well, you don't have to be afraid of me, he said. When I came back that evening, he told me how it is with boys. Slightly embarrassing, but still awfully nice to be able to discuss it with him. Neither he nor I had ever imagined we'd be able to talk so openly to a girl or a boy, respectively, about such intimate matters. I think I know everything now. He told me a lot about what he called prophylactics in German. That night in the bathroom, Margaret and I were talking about Bram and Trees, two friends of hers. This morning, I was in for a nasty surprise. After breakfast, Peter beckoned me upstairs. That was a dirty trick you played on me, he said. I heard what you and Margaret were saying in the bathroom last night. I think you just wanted to find out how much Peter knew and then have a good laugh. I was stunned. I did everything I could to talk him out of that outrageous idea. I could understand how he must have felt, but it just wasn't true. Oh no, Peter, I said. I'd never be so mean. I told you I won't pass on anything you said to me, and I won't. To put on an act like that and then deliberately be so mean. No, Peter. That's not my idea of a joke. It won't be fair. I didn't say anything, honest. Won't you believe me? He assured me he did, but I think we'll have to talk about it again sometime. I've done nothing all day but worry about it. Thank goodness he came right out and said what was on his mind. Imagine if he'd gone around thinking I could be that mean. He's so sweet. Now I'll have to tell him everything. Yours, Anne.
0: Friday, March 24th, 1944, Dear Kitty, I often go up to Peter's room after dinner nowadays to breathe in the fresh evening air. You can get around to meaningful conversations more quickly in the dark than with the sun tickling your face. It's cozy and snug sitting beside him on a chair and looking outside. The Van Dans and Dussel make the silliest remarks when I disappear into his room. And second home, they say. Or is it proper for a gentleman to receive young girls in his room at night with the lights up? Peter has amazing presence of mind in the face of these so-called witticisms. My mother, incidentally, is also bursting into curiosity and simply dying to ask what we talk about. Only she's secretly afraid I'd refuse to answer. Peter says the grown-ups are just jealous because we're young and that we shouldn't take their obnoxious comments to heart. Sometimes he comes downstairs to get me. But that's awkward too, because in spite of all his precautions, his face turns bright red and he can hardly get the words out of his mouth. I'm glad I don't blush. It must be extremely unpleasant. Besides, it bothers me that Margaret has to sit downstairs all by herself, while I'm upstairs enjoying Peter's company. But what can I do about it? I won't mind it if she came, but she'd just be the odd one out, sitting there like a lump on a log. I've had to listen to countless remarks about our sudden friendship. I can't tell you how often the conversation at meals has been about an annexed wedding. Should the war last another five years? Do we take any notice of this parental chit chat? Hardly, since it's all so silly. Have our parents forgotten that they were young ones? Apparently they have. At any rate, they laugh at us when we're serious, and they're serious when we're joking. I don't know what's going to happen next or whether we'll run out of things to say. But if it goes on like this, we'll eventually be able to be together without talking. If only his parents would stop acting so strangely. It's probably because they don't like seeing me so often. Peter and I certainly never tell them what we talk about. Imagine if they knew we were discussing such intimate things. I'd like to ask Peter whether he knows what girls look like down there. I don't think boys are as complicated as girls. You can easily see what boys look like in photographs or pictures of male nudes. But with women, it's different. In women, the genitals, or whatever they're called, are hidden between their legs. Peter has probably never seen a girl up close. To tell you the truth, neither have I. Boys are a lot easier. How on earth would I go about describing a girl's parts? I can tell from what he said that he doesn't know exactly how it all fits together. He was talking about the cervix, but that's on the inside, where you can't see it. Everything's pretty well arranged in us women. Until I was 11 or 12, I didn't realize there was a second set of labia on the inside, since you couldn't see them. What's even funnier is that I thought urine came out of the clitoris. I asked mother one time what the little bump was, and she said she didn't know. She can really play dumb when she wants to. But to get back to the subject. How on earth can you explain what it all looks like without any models? Shall I try anyway? Okay, here goes. When you're standing up, all you see from the front is hair. Between your legs, there are two soft cushiony things, also covered with hair, which press together when you're standing, so you can't see what's inside. They separate when you sit down, and they're very red and quite fleshy on the inside. In the upper part, Between the outer labia, there's a fold of skin that, on second thought, looks like a kind of pista. That's the clitoris. Then come the inner labia, which are also pressed together in a kind of crease. When they open up, you can see a fleshy little mount, no bigger than the top of my thumb. The upper part has a couple of small holes in it, which is where the urine comes out. The lower part looks like if it were just skin. And yet that's where the vagina is. You can barely find it because the folds of skin hide the opening. The hole's so small, I can hardly imagine how a man could get in there, much less how a baby could come up. It's hard enough trying to get your index finger inside. That's all there is, and yet it plays such an important role. Yours, and Frank.
1: Saturday, March 25th, 1944. Dearest Kitty, you never realise how much you've changed until after it's happened. I've changed quite drastically. Everything about me is different. My opinions, ideas, critical outlook, inwardly, outwardly, nothing the same. And I might safely add, since it's true, I've changed for the better. I once told you that, after years of being adored, it was hard for me to adjust to the harsh reality of grown-ups and rebukes. But father and mother are largely to blame for my having to put up with so much. At home they wanted me to enjoy life, which was fine, but here they shouldn't have encouraged me to agree with them and only show me their side of all the quarrels and gossip. It was a long time before I discovered the score was 50-50. I now know that many blunders have been committed here, by young and old alike. Father and mother's biggest mistake in dealing with the Van Dens is that they're never candid and friendly. Above all, I want to keep the peace, and to neither quarrel nor gossip. With father and Margaret, that's not difficult. But it is with mother which is why I'm glad she gives me an occasional rap on the knuckles. You can win Mr Van Dan to your side by agreeing with him, listening quietly, not saying much and most of all, responding to his teasing and his corny jokes with a joke of your own. Mrs Fandy can be won over by talking openly to her and admitting when you're wrong. She also frankly admits her faults, of which she has many. I know all too well that she doesn't think as badly of me as she did in the beginning, and that's simply because I'm honest and tell people right to their faces what I think, even when it's not very flattering. I want to be honest. I think it gets you further and also makes you feel better about yourself. Yesterday, Mrs. Fendi was talking about the rise we gave Mr. Clayman. All we do is give, give, give. But at a certain point, I think that enough is enough. If he'd only take the trouble. Mr. Clayman could scrounge up his own rice. Why should we give away all our supplies? We need them just as badly. No, Mrs. Fandan, I replied. I don't agree with you. Mr. Clayman may very well be able to get hold of a little rice, but he doesn't like having to worry about it. It's not our place to criticize the people who are helping us. We should give them whatever they need if we can possibly spare it. One less plate of rice a week won't make that much difference. We can always eat beans. Mrs. Fandy didn't see it my way, but she added that, even though she disagreed, she was willing to back down. And that was an entirely different matter. Well, I've said enough. Sometimes I know what my place is and sometimes I have my doubts. But I'll eventually get where I want to be. I know I will. Especially now that I have help, since Peter helps me through many a rough patch and rainy day. I honestly don't know how much he loves me and whether we'll ever get as far as a kiss. In any case, I don't want to force the issue. I told father I often go see Peter and asked if he approved, and of course he did. It's much easier now to tell Peter things I'd normally keep to myself. For example, I told him I want to write later on, and if I can't be a writer, to write in addition to my work. I don't have much in the way of money or worldly possessions. I'm not beautiful, intelligent, or clever, but I'm happy, and I intend to stay that way. I was born happy. I love people. I have a trusting nature and I'd like everyone else to be happy too. Your devoted friend and Frank. An empty day, though clear and bright, is just as dark as any night. Monday, March 27, 1944. Dearest Kitty, at least one long chapter on our life in hiding should be about politics, but I've been avoiding the subject since it interests me so little. Today, however, I'll devote an entire letter to politics. Of course, there are many different opinions on this topic, and it's not surprising to hear it frequently discussed in times of war. But arguing so much about politics is just plain stupid. Let them laugh, swear, make bets grumble and do whatever they want as long as they stew in their own juice. But don't let them argue, since that only makes things worse. The people who come from outside bring us a lot of news that later proves to be untrue. However. Up to now, our radio has never lied. Jan, Meep, Mr. Clayman, Beb, and Mr. Kugler go up and down in their political moods, though Jan least of all. Here in the annex, the mood never varies. The endless debates over the invasion, air raids, speeches, etc., are accompanied by countless exclamations such as, Oh, for heaven's sake, if they're just getting started now, how long is it going to last? It's going splendidly, but great. Optimists and pessimists, not to mention the realists, air their opinions with unslagging energy, and as with everything else, they are all certain that they have a monopoly on the truth. It annoys a certain lady that her spouse is such supreme faith in the British, and a certain husband attacks his wife because of her teasing and disparaging remarks about his beloved nation. And so it goes from early in the morning to late at night. The funny part is that they never get tired of it. I've discovered a trick, and the effect is overwhelming, just like pricking someone with a pin and watching them jump. Here's how it works. I start talking about politics. All it takes is a single question, a word, or a sentence, and before you know it, the entire family is involved. As if the German Wehrmacht News and the English BBC weren't enough, they've now added special air raid announcements, in the word, splendid. But the other side of the coin is that the British Air Force is operating around the clock, not unlike the German propaganda machine, which is cranking up lies 24 hours a day. So, the radio is switched on every morning at night, and is listened to every hour until 9, 10, or even 11 at night. This is the best evidence yet that the adults have infinite patience, but also that their brains have turned to mush. One broadcast, two at the most, should be enough to last the entire day. But no, those old nincompoops. Never mind. I've already said it all. Music while you work. The Dutch broadcast from England, Frank Phillips or Queen Wilhelmina, they each get a turn and find a willing listener. If the adults aren't eating or sleeping, they're clustered around the radio talking about eating, sleeping and politics. Phew, it's getting to be a bore and it's all I can do to keep from turning into a dreary old croon myself, though with all the old folks around me, that might not be such a bad idea. Here's a shining example, a speech made by our beloved Winston Churchill. Nine o'clock, Sunday evening, the teapot, under its cozy, is on the table, and the guests enter the room. Do so sits to the left of the radio, Mr. Vandy in front of it, and Peter to the side. Mother is next to Mr. Vandy, with Mrs. Vandy behind them. Margaret and I are sitting in the last row and Pim at the table. I realize this isn't a very clear description of our seating arrangements, but it doesn't matter. The men smoke. Peter's eyes close from the strain of listening. Mama is dressed in her long, dark negligee. Mrs. Van D is trembling because of the planes, which take no notice of the speech but fly blithely on toward Essen. Father is slurping his tea, and Margaret and I are united in a sisterly way by the sleeping Moshi, who has taken possession of both our knees. Margaret's hair is in curlers, and my nightgown is too small, too tight, and too short. It all looks so intimate, cozy and peaceful, and for once it really is. Yet I await the end of the speech with dread. They're impatient, straining at the leash to start another argument. Psst! psst. Like a cat luring a mouse from its hole, they goad each other into quarrels and dissent. Yours, Anne. Tuesday, March 28th,
0: 1944. My dearest Kitty, as much as I'd like to write more on politics, I have lots of other news to report today. First, Mother has virtually forbidden me to go up to Peter's since, according to her, Mrs. Fandan is jealous. Second, Peters invited Margaret to join us upstairs. Whether he really means it or is just saying it out of politeness, I don't know. Third, I asked father if he thought I should take any notice of Mrs. Fandan's jealousy and he said I didn't have to. What should I do now? Mother's angry, doesn't want me going upstairs, wants me to go back to doing my homework in a room I share with Duso. She may be jealous herself, father doesn't begrudge us those few hours and thinks it's nice we get along so well. Margaret likes Peter too, but feels that three people can talk about the same things as two. Furthermore, mother thinks Peter's in love with me. To tell you the truth, I wish he were, then we'd be even, and it'd be a lot easier to get to know each other. She also claims he's always looking at me. Well, suppose we do give each other the occasional wink but I can't help it if he keeps admiring my dimples, can I? I am in a very difficult position. Mother's against me and I'm against her. Father turns a blind eye to the silent struggle between Mother and me. Mother is sad because she still loves me, but I'm not at all unhappy because she no longer means anything to me. As for Peter, I don't want to give him up. He's so sweet and I admire him so much. He and I could have a really beautiful relationship. So why are the old folks poking their noses into our business again? Fortunately, I'm used to hiding my feelings, so I managed not to show how crazy I am about him. Is he ever going to say anything? Am I ever going to feel his cheek against mine, the way I felt Peter's cheek in my dream? Oh, Peter and Peter, you are one and the same. They don't understand us. They'd never understand that we're content just to sit beside each other and not say a word. They have no idea of what draws us together. Oh, when will we overcome all these difficulties? And yet it's good that we have to surmount them since it makes the end that much more beautiful. When he lays his head on his arms and closes his eyes, he's still a child. When he plays with Moshi or talks about her, he's loving. When he carries the potatoes or other heavy loads, he's strong. When he goes to watch the gunfire or walks through the dark house to look for burglars, he's brave. And when he's so awkward and clumsy, he's hopelessly endearing. It's much nicer when he explains something to me than when I have to teach him. I wish he were superior to me in nearly every way. What do we care about our two mothers? Oh, if only he'd say something. Father always says I'm conceited, but I'm not. I'm merely vain. I haven't had many people tell me I was pretty, except for a boy at school who said I look so cute when I smile. Yesterday Peter paid me a true compliment. And just for fun, I'll give you a rough idea of our conversation. Peter often says, smile. I thought it was strange. So yesterday I asked him, why do you always want me to smile? Because you get dimples in your cheeks. How do you do that? I was born with them. There's also one in my chin. It's the only mark of beauty I possess. No, no, that's not true. Yes, it is. I know I'm not beautiful. I never have been and I never will be. I don't agree. I think you're pretty. I'm not. I say you are. And you'll have to take my word for it. So, of course, I then said the same about him. Yours, and Frank. Dastardly. Dastardly. Adjective. Wicked and true. Prophylactics. Prophylactics. Now, medicine or cause of action used to prevent disease, a condom. Ninkampoop. Ninkampoop. Now, a foolish or stupid person.